Hello, and welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast with Joe Lavelle and Dr. Glenn Winkle. On today's episode, number 38, we are joined by the one and only Menachem Brody, the man behind Human Vortex Training and the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. I asked Menachem to join us to get to the bottom of how an older athlete can use strength or resistance training to become healthier, stronger, and more resilient in their endurance sport. Of course, we couldn't cover the entire topic, but we got in a full hour's worth in this episode, and we've scheduled a follow-up with Menachem to finish our conversation. As you probably know, strength training for cyclists has long been a point of contention and of confusion. It used to be that cyclists thought weight training was stupid because lifting weights got you injured, made you tired, used up valuable training time, and added heavy muscles that you didn't need. More recently, strength training has become the next thing, especially for older athletes, but Menachem says the pendulum has swung too far. Listen in as we cover the whys and hows for older athletes using strength training to get stronger in general, get faster on the bike, reduce pain, improve posture, and become more resilient, all without getting injured or wrecking your endurance training plan. All right, let's talk to Menachem. Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast, Menachem. Thanks for having me, guys. Welcome, Menachem. Glad to hear you. Welcome. And uh, Glenn, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Excellent. Well, Glenn, I think you and me and our entire audience are going to be tickled to have the knowledge that Menachem is going to give us today. I have been following him for a long time. Uh, Menachem, as I have mentioned to you, and I'll just repeat, the focus of the Wise Athletes podcast is older athletes and how they can improve their athletic performance today and retain their athletic capability for a long time. I've taken to calling this athletic performance longevity, but everybody else sort of understands it as kind of an intersection between health span and athletic performance. And I am a big believer that strength training is at the heart of this question, and I am certain you're going to help us understand it better. Before we dive into that, from your perspective and knowledge base, it would be useful if you could share with our audience a bit about your background and your area of expertise. Well, uh, depending on which part of my website you look at, it's either uh, 15 years or <laughs> it's it's almost a quarter century at this point. There's a bunch of stuff. You know, you build it once and you leave it kind of thing. Um, but I've been involved in the health and fitness field since uh, 1996. And when I say involved, I mean going sneaking into the gym, uh, learning things from the, the local trainers. Uh, I, I remember wearing a, a class of 96 shirt from my cousin's high school so that I would, I would blend in. I mean, clearly, you know, I'm this little, little kid in there. But um, I started writing training programs at a really young age, first for myself, yeah. then for my friends. Um, back in uh, sophomore year of high school, I was already writing training plans for the group of, of eight of us who uh, would go to the gym. Uh, at the age of uh, 15, I was already competitively powerlifting. I uh, had a coach uh, proper. It got started with a, a, a local liftoff at the community center. Nice. Did really well. Wound up, uh, my coach was, I actually beat out two of my friends who are brothers very closely, who also happened to be really, really great uh, cyclists. And uh, long story short, uh, just through my career, I, I really did not have any interest in getting into the clinical side of things, even though that's where I, where I wound up working for a couple of years. Uh, I was trained as an ACSM uh, health and performance instructor, decided not yeah. to sit for the exam at the, the behest or the suggestion, I should say, of one of my mentors and got into strength and conditioning coaching. Uh, and that's where I've been playing for the last 17 years, uh, 
14 years have been focused on cyclists and triathletes in particular. Uh, way back when, a number of coaches got their thumb or their finger in my chest, and you're destroying cyclists by having them lift heavy things and doing heavy. There are days now where I just, I just wish I could walk around the corner and see them and just, you know, just smile, say, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> um, so the world has swung, but, but that being said, it swung too fast in the other direction. And that's where the pendulum, uh, in health and fitness goes. It never stops in the middle. It always goes pretty wildly from one to the other. And that's where, you know, athletic performance longevity, as you call it here is spot on, right? A lot of us have this mentality of, Strength training means more reps, more weight on the bar, uh, heavier, harder exercises. If you're into social media like Instagram and Facebook, it is an absolute cluster of just, you know, 20-something trainers who have the looks, both face and body, and they're just showing these incredible things. You're like, wow, that's really, that's got to be really good for cycling. And the truth of it is most of it is just garbage. Yeah. And the rules change over the age of 35, 40, forget like 50 is what my coach and coaches would tell me is that, you know, after the age of 50, they weren't concerned about the days they felt bad going into the gym. They were more concerned about the days they felt good because they're going to push too hard and then they're going to be uh -huh. sore for a week or two because the processes change. Um, I know that's a little bit off, off the shoot, but I was, I was exposed to that side of things. And most of the athletes I work with are master's athletes. 43, I think is the average age or no, no. 43 okay. is a lower age. 56 and a half is the average age. Excuse me. Oh yeah. Um, that's perfect for us. Yeah. And a lot of people are like, what? what are you? Cause I'm, you know, there's only so many athletes that you can work with at a high quality level. And the master's athletes I, I tend to track are like yourself. They're very inquisitive. They want to know the answer. And they also understand like the answer in the research or the answer I see in a magazine article may not be the best one for me. I, I need to really understand the nuances and ask those tough questions and the ones that seem kind of silly, but actually make the biggest difference. Yeah. Well, awesome. I, I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast. You know, your cycling focused, you know, whether it's triathlon or cycling in particular, cycling strength training perspective gives you, that's uncommon. That gives you an uncommon set of experiences that I and I say uncommon because I have been looking for a long time and really you're it. I, I have not found anybody else. Fortunately, you're also, you seem really smart about this. I have been watching your videos for years and have learned a ton. Uh, so you're, you are my top resource for like strength and core and functional movement questions that I've got as a cyclist. I, I want to ask you, before we dive into some details here, what would you say has been the key to your success in help, helping cyclists improve their game? What sort of benefits have they gotten from your help in the work that they do off the bike? How has it helped them on the bike? That's a really good question. Uh, to buy myself a little time and also genuinely thank you. I mean, that means a lot. Um, I really, I try and surround myself with people who are way smarter than me. Uh, I often feel like the dumbest person in the room, which is great. That's where you want to be, right? You pick sure. up all these things. Um, so I think that the most common theme is the one that people don't even realize because it's such a low hanging fruit um, yeah. that, that we, we often forego it. Although I think you and Glenn and most of the listeners here on the wise athletes podcast will all go, yeah, of course I would recognize that. But once you actually have it, it doesn't register because it just, yeah. it seems normal. And that is, I've had a number of individuals come through some of my programs. So 
last year in Corona, uh, we did a 60-day uh, body weight movement program. And I had already had it in, in the process of building it. I was going to release in the fall. So we wound up doing beta. We did weekly live calls, uh, video sessions for the whole time, which is great. It created community as well. But the worst for marketing. I just had, I had a phone call with my business coach. So it's the worst for marketing because they felt better. They didn't have pain. Yeah. And this was something I literally, and this isn't a millennial thing, like literally, I I literally have to pull teeth to say, do you realize that when we started, you had said that every single day of the week, you got up and you had some type of pain. And now for the last 60 days, or not 60 days, 60 days minus about 10 to 14, for the last 48 days, you haven't had any pain. Do you, do you realize that's a big win? And they go, oh, well, maybe. So that, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it, and then I've had a couple people since then say, you know, I, I need to go back on the program because I, 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 I'm starting to feel my, my back or my neck again. And that's one of those things that when you do it right, there's nothing sexy about it. There absolutely is nothing sexy about doing strength training right for cyclists and triathletes. And that's where um, I've kind of found my niche is if you look at the YouTube channel, it's grown relatively slowly. So there's another coach that I've I've met. He works out of um, uh, Texas. Great guy. Uh, knows his niche audience. He's growing at about uh, 1,000 subscribers a month. And wow. he's just started. I mean, he's he's just started. He's been doing it for two and a half years. Uh, I've been doing it for about four, and I'm growing at about 70 a month. And I'm super niche, giving very specific uh, adaptations. And what happens is, is that a lot of us like to look at strength training in the general masses standpoint. And that's what this other trainer does. Fantastic. I mean, he gets it. I enjoy his videos. On the other side, there's I look at it and I'm thinking about the average cyclist watching this. I'm like, man, this is going to create a lot of work for me. And I don't want a lot of work. I want to avoid these kinds of, of things. Because uh. when we're in our sport of cycling, we have highly repetitive movements. And that's the first place most people go for strength training is, ah, oh, I gotta do uh, lunges. I've gotta do leg press. I've gotta do uh, posterior chain. These are all fantastic pieces, but they need to be done in coordination with a lot of other things, mostly upper body and rotary stability work. And rotary stability is just your ability to lock your rib cage and pelvis together to resist them twisting away from one another, which for most athletes that have been riding for two or three years over the riding age of three, we have, when we climb or we get tired, the hips go one way, the shoulders go the other way. If we took away the bike with a, a Premier Pro or some type of fancy uh, uh, software, and we just put the Chiquita banana hat on you and it would look like you're dancing the Chiquita banana or the Hulu, right? And <laughs> we don't think about that as being a win. Um, so to bring it back, you know, the athletic performance longevity here and, and part of being a better cyclist is understanding that in order to actually stay healthy longer, we need to do things that you're not getting on the bike and things that are gonna counteract or train things that you're not getting on the bike. So overhead pressing. Uh, a landmine press, really, really important for athletes over the age of 35. I've had a number of athletes, 33, 29, 37, 38, 35, like just a smattering of mid-30s who have frozen shoulder and they can't figure it out. They can't figure it out. Well, they work as software developers or they work in IT or they're full stack engineers and they're 
seated at their computer and then they're on their bike on the weekends for 10 hours uh, 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 you know, total and then three hours during the week. So they've put themselves into these positions where, yeah, your legs are getting stronger and you can do more planks, but their shoulder, their scapular thoracic uh, rhythm, the ability of the shoulder blade to move on the rib cage is just trashed. Um, I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole and, and, and kind of getting yeah, into yeah. the details, but that's that's kind of where we need to be and, and where the the niche strength training comes. And and the thing is, right now, endurance athletes are drinking out of a fire hose when it comes to strength training because we've gone from yeah. lightweights, high reps to heavyweights uh, and, and low reps. And we went from endurance sets to lift heavy stuff. And while I love right. the individual in particular who's proliferated that and really been at the forefront – there's a couple steps that we're missing that are really important before you start lifting heavy stuff. Well, let's try to get into some of that so that we can give the audience here some pointers on where to begin or where their approach has broken down. I mean, the it all kind of starts with the goal is using strength training to improve performance in your sport. And let me kick it off by saying that, you know, every time I have, you know, drank the Kool-Aid and advocated for, oh yeah, you need to be strength training. Somebody always throws out a, a study at me that says, no, it doesn't help. In fact, it hurts performance. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, that's really frustrating that those facts are inconsistent with my beliefs. <laughs> and I don't like that. But, you know, and I actually think that it's wrong, but I, I don't know why it's wrong. Do you know why it's wrong? I'll try and keep it short. <laughs> um, I actually just published here an episode, I think it's 107 or 109 on, on my podcast, uh, called The Now Absurdity of Evidence-Based Coaching. And uh, my wife has pointed out, she tends to listen when, I, when I'm uh, recording, because now I'm recording when my, our son's sleeping. But uh, she said, you know, there's a couple episodes where you sound a little bit bitter, you know, you're jaded. <laughs> and my response to her, at first I, I was defensive as all, you know, not, yes, yes. no husband would ever know about this <laughs> defensive with your wife, <laughs> what are you talking about? But then yes. you realize, you know, there's, there's truth there and you listen to it. And it wasn't that I'm bitter or jaded. It, it's that these are mistakes that a lot of people are making that are, that are causing easily preventable injuries and, and loss of health. And when I say loss of health, we're talking uh, quality of life, back pain. You know, Glenn uh, had mentioned before the flexibility and strength and the hamstring issues uh, before we hit record here. So these are types of things that if you learn to dissect and really read the research articles and understand what they're saying and in the context that they're being taken, you can see really big information thrown uh, coming to you. And it's not the stuff that's thrown at you. It's not the, the soft pitch down the middle of the plate that says, you know, uh, strength training in cyclists for six weeks with heavyweights saw an increase in time to fatigue by blah, blah, blah. That's, that's great. That that's nice. Alan Lim also was, was on my podcast and we talked about this and, and essentially he, he had a great line. It was something along the lines of evidence-based coaches are now, um, using, Research as a, a black or white, I think was the, the essence. It's yes or no. It's binary. It's yes or no. And that's not how it works at all. So for those of you listeners here uh, on the Wise Athletes podcast, I'd strongly recommend picking up a book called uh, How to Lie with Statistics. It was written back in the 1950s, 1960s. Glenn's laughing. He, you I've get, got a copy. Yeah. And, and when you read that and you start to really understand, and that was referred to me uh, by a client of mine who is a statistician 
statistician. She's a professor at WVU and Pitt. How she straddles those two lines and deals with the, the fanship, I have no idea, but she does it. <laughs> um, yeah. Because early in my coaching career, I was very, very research-based. And my mentors and my coaches were so patient with me, man. You know, Doc used to just roll his eyes like, what research article are you going to tell me now? Uh, in his gruff voice. <laughs> and essentially, I went through and very fortunate to have people. And, and Sarah was very much a tough hitter. She's like, uh, show me the research article. No, no, print it out for me. And I'll read through it. And we went between uh, sessions back and forth. And finally, she just showed me it, circled something. And I was like, what's that? She's like, it's it's a statistical nova. I was like, yeah, Anne. She's like, they, they went through the data with whatever was going to tell them would work. If they actually wanted to get real data that was actually mattered, it would be a statistical ANOVA. And I was fresh out of college at the time. So it, my, my eyes were like, holy crap. And it was the, ah. Um, that's what a lot of people are missing with research is number one is they are going to tailor the conclusions to what the, uh, what they find with the study, not what the original question was. So yeah. it needs to be significant, but even more so before that, we have to think about one, what are the researchers studying? And there won't be money there unless somebody's interested and it needs to be somebody who is either a cyclist usually or is a strength training athlete who got into cycling or their head of a department is a cyclist and is interested in putting the money into that. And on top of that, it's how they're executing the research. Most research is done on, on 18 to 25 year old males because they're college age and they're plentiful and they want to make 20 bucks so they can buy pizza and beer that weekend. Although I've seen the beer prices. I don't know if they can afford both anymore. <laughs> like maybe you get one beer and a slice of pizza. Um, uh, so, you know, Dr. Stacy Sims has talked about uh, the, the research bias towards men. But aside from that, when they look at the research, you have to remember they've got to find something that they can easily relatively control. So, of course, it's going to be something that's very, very small. It's going to be very, very set. And that's just not how we work. To bring it into the performance side of things, strength for strength's sake doesn't do crap for you. It doesn't do diddly. It doesn't. The weight on the bar does not matter. Miguel Aragoncillo would be a great guest for you. I'll, I'll introduce you guys uh, when we're done here. Uh, he's my coach for strength training. Um, yeah. And uh, essentially what we're looking at is, is how you perform something matters more than the weight on the bar. And that was my next step in my evolution. My, my original coach passed. I went about five years without a coach at all. I wanted to tinker with some stuff and try some stuff, which was fantastic because I really made a lot of mess ups and figured a lot of stuff out on myself as opposed to my athletes, uh, which was nice. Uh, but when I found Miguel, it was really the, I, I guess you could call it a metamorphosis where I really, he took me so far forward from where I was. And he just connected a bunch of different dots that I had. And I'm like, how the hell do these things tie together? And he's like, doo, 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 there we go. And what it was is uh, Thomas Myers has a book called Anatomy Trains. And this was something that was uh, introduced to me back in 2003. Um, there's a muscle activation technique specialist out of Pittsburgh named Joe D'Antonis. Fantastic, brilliant guy. He was ahead of the game before everybody was talking about MAT. Uh, he studied with Greg Roskopf, I think, when Greg was teaching out of San Diego before he moved to Denver. And uh, muscle activation technique is based off of this idea that there are, uh, the fascial system in the body is what, what determines movement, not what you and I and, and Glenn have learned in anatomy and physiology, where the bicep attaches at the elbow and inserts at the humerus and it flexes the elbow. No, 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 no. 
there's a fascial system that runs fingertip to fingertip, front and back. There's a spiral line which goes all the way down. Glenn's shaking his head like he's, yeah. So that's how the body moves. And yet most of us, and this is where we're drinking from from a fire hose. And hopefully, I can get this through to you guys. It's not how it's not doing the movement with weight. It's how you're doing it. Where are you getting the movement from? When you're doing a squat, what are you thinking of? Push the weight up, or are you thinking about pushing the floor away? Or are you thinking about bracing your core? That's gonna significantly alter the outcome of the movement. And when it comes to strength training, especially for masters athletes over the age of 30, so this is, you know, that's really young, quote unquote. Right. Mm -hmm. That's where we see the biggest gains. And, and a number of people that I've worked with this year in, in uh, January and February, I actually had four people sign up in particular. Uh, I don't take a lot of athletes individually, but they signed up. We went through the, the uh, call, the interview, felt comfortable. Uh, they didn't even make it through the two-week on-ramp where we're just starting to, to learn to move. And each one of their, their responses was, when do I put more weight on the bar? This is garbage. Not the right people, uh, not the right time, which uh, is okay. And it's frustrating because there's so much out there uh, that the research is showing that strength training helps cycling or it doesn't. And it's very black or white. You, like, you can choose one side or the other and you have almost equal supporting evidence. The yeah. missing piece is the strength on the bar, the weight on the bar doesn't matter. The, the track athletes I'm yeah. working with here for the Israel national uh, team, we're not, we haven't touched weights in six months and they're performing better. I taught them the skill oh. of intra-abdominal pressure and bracing, locking, using the glute. Then they're like, hey, you know, I did that out of the, the block for the, uh, for the starts and I could really feel a difference, you know, getting the power down to the pedals. And we're talking about, right. you know, the Israel track program is coming up very quickly. Uh, Steve McEwen's at the helm. Uh, Yuval Ben Mordechai is the local uh, Israeli coach in charge. And the reason they're progressing so quickly is because we're, we're you know, Steve is a world-class coach. He's, I, I, yeah. I think it's the elite eight or something like that for the Olympic coaches. It's uh, other Olympic coaches have to nominate you and you have to go through a process. So he's one of those guys. So he's truly, yeah. truly world-class. that's a large part of the reason why he's the mastermind behind everything. However, on the other okay. side, it's the understanding. I was very nervous when they asked me uh, to work with them because I'm like, I'm not going to load these guys up. <laughs> and it came after they had had a previous strength coach who was like, oh yeah, cyclists need to squat a lot. Well, one of the athletes... <laughs> Uh, got injured a week before a, a major competition. Yeah. The kid was loaded up with 100, 130 kilos for squats. And my jaw dropped. And, and the person I was talking to uh, was like, yeah. And meanwhile, you know, I had a couple other coaches who were watching our, our sessions on the side. You know, wh why aren't you giving them weights? I'm like, they can't right, execute the right. skills. Why would we load them up? So to bring this full circle here, uh, Mike Boyle, who's, you know, the, the, the author of Functional Strength Training for Sport Performance book back in the early 2000s, uh, he's gone on numerous times saying that if you follow the research, you're easily, easily five to 10 years behind the best practices. That's for sure. ball, uh, field sports, ball sports. When it comes to cycling and triathlon, and I, I'm being very, very uh, uh, liberal here by saying this, 15 years. It's really huh. closer to 20. So what a lot of people are doing right now is, is even before what Lance was doing in 2005, 2006, when he was trying to make his comeback. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're so far from where we need to be. We've, we've gotten to that general masses fitness strength training. But the number of athletes, specifically females, that I've heard of that are getting hurt because they're going to lift heavy stuff, 
because a well-meaning person is, is trumpeting like, hey, you've got to change the mentality. And yes, in order to change the mentality, you got to shake it up, right? As I'm shaking the computer. Yeah. Sorry, you'll have to edit that out. <laughs> um, it, it's You have to shake people to get them to think otherwise. Um, but there's also this fine line of, of you've got to be a contrarian. And, and an upcoming episode I just recorded here is uh, being a contrarian without being a jerk. Because some okay. people will interpret, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm being a, a, a poopy head. Like, why are you talking like that? Why are you saying things that are so mean? It, it's we've got it. We've got too far one way and we've got yeah, to yeah. bring it back a little bit. Well, so let's go back. If I can try to summarize this, the point you have made, which really resonates with me is that we're talking skills. And so lifting weights is a skill. Putting power into your bicycle is a skill. The problem seems to be that learning the skill of lifting heavy weight does not really help you much with the skill of putting power into your bicycle. So even if you maybe have stronger muscles, you don't know how to use those muscles to have stronger, to have more power on your bike. Close. Am, am I partially right? Close. Let, let me add one linchpin for that, and that is... As adult athletes, as, as, as adults getting into sport, we have a very hard time of leaving our ego at the door. So we have a hard time of saying, I'm going to go in and I'm going to squat a 20 kilo barbell, 45 pound barbell for sets of 10 today, even though it's week number six. Learning the skill of how to move properly for each of the, what I call the fundamental five plus one movements, push, pull, squat, hinge, press, and rotary stability. Those skills are what are gonna make you better on the bike. But it's almost completely useless, almost, you, you can get out of it, uh, without getting the skills on the bike of braking, cornering, handling, being able to select a gear, how to climb out of the saddle, how to climb in the saddle, how to sprint. These are things, when I coach my clubs, the pit cycling club, uh, Chic Velo, uh, which was the, one of the first uh, all-female clubs in Pittsburgh, White City Racing, any of the clubs that I've worked with, any time that we had a skill session, all of a sudden, all the excuses came out. Oh, well, I can't make it. Uh, yeah, my kid has a project next Thursday after next, so I need to be there to be home early to make the coffee so my wife can make sure that he's getting up on time. Like, yeah. It was just, <laughs> we're afraid of developing these skills of breaking and cornering and handling, but those are the actual skills that will allow you to take the skill of learning how to do the fundamental five plus one and be able to see better performance on the bike. Um, so in my book, the strength training for cycling performance, I put in, in, in specific on bike intervals and mentioned about how bike handling, braking, cornering and gear selection and how to climb out of the saddle are what's going to tie everything together. So you can go into the gym. Sure. Now, now the thing is, is, is you mentioned earlier about my movements and, and how, clean they are at this point. So you see what you need to be doing and then realize it's not anywhere there. That's years of refinement. And compared to some of yeah. the athletes I'm working with who are many years my junior, but far superior as athletes, I look even bad, um, you know, as far as my movements. So I show them one thing and then I'm like, yeah, they're, they're like, is that right? I'm like, yeah, that's better than I can do it. <laughs> um, okay. So it, it's one of those things that when you learn how to move well as a human being, Forget as a cyclist, as a triathlete, when you, you learn how to squat properly and you begin to understand, huh, well, if my feet aren't straight ahead, but my right foot is out a little bit, I feel way better. 
like it's not perfectly parallel. It's not what the trainer said I have to be doing with my feet straight ahead or feet straight out or butt to grass. You start feeling what works for you and you refine that as opposed to the weight on the bar. Almost all of a sudden, things start to click on the bike. You get on the bike the next time, you're like, huh, that, that actually felt a little bit better. I wonder what I did different. Oh, I must have slept well. And these are the, the, the micro gains that you'll have that so many athletes, just like we talked about at the beginning, that, that loss of pain or the absence of pain in their daily lives is such a, a normal thing to them that like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. I haven't had pain for a month. It's the same thing on the bike. And this is where, yeah, you might see power increases. You might see speed increases, but overall, it's the ease with which you're able to ride. And that's such a feel thing. And we've been so trained by science and research and power meters and Strava uh, and, and measuring against others that it needs to be shown in data in order to be an advantage that we've lost the ability to say, how do I feel today and actually register where we are? So yes, you're yeah, right. Yeah. It, it is not the, the skill of squatting converting to the bike, but if you take the time to learn what it feels like to squat well, to hinge well, you just pick up this almost innate ability to say, I feel good on the bike today. Things are working well, or eh, it's a little clunky with my pedal stroke. Okay. So uh, there's a couple of things that, to try to drill in. The two things, and let me mention them here, and then we can dive into them. One was this idea of the core, you didn't say strength, but the ability for your core to be stiff at the right moments is true for, is essentially a fundamental skill that can apply to lifting weights and to putting power on a bike. And so it may be that your ability to be stiff in your core is not something that you're training exactly, specifically when you're lifting weights, but it is, it is something you have to develop just to be safe. You know, even maybe naturally you will instinctively try to do it. And then with some counsel, you'll be able to do it even better. But it's those same sorts of instincts that will help you on the bike so that when you are pushing down hard on the pedal, the power goes out into the pedal rather than back up through your hip and into your back and you're doing the dance, the Chiquita banana dance that you were describing before. So there's that there. But anyway, that's a skill. There's, there is some strength involved. I mean, you've got to have some endurance in those muscles, but it's also, a, you know, you don't want to hold those muscles tight for two hours. No, nobody can do that. You, you're just pulsing them to be tight enough at just the right moment, and then you're letting it go, and then you're tight again, and then you're letting it go, and now you can do that for a long time. But again, that's a skill. That's a coordination kind of a thing uh, that you're working on. And then I think the other thing, which maybe hasn't come up as we've been recording, but did come up earlier, and that's the idea of as you're lifting weights, it is making you stronger making your muscles stronger, which makes you more resilient. So you can recover better uh, in whatever you're doing, whether you're over time, you're recovering better from lifting weights. You're also recovering better from using the same muscles riding your bicycle. So now you can train harder. You're going to have less injury. So you're going to train more consistently. Yeah. I, anyway, I think that those are the two things that I've extracted out of this conversation. Did I get those things right? Yeah. And you actually bring up... Uh Three other points uh, that we can, well, five, but let's start with the, the first three. Um, and we can, I mean, I'm going to try and keep this 
if you guys want to have me back for another one, if the listeners uh, enjoy this, <laughs> I love talking about this stuff all day. Uh, my wife thinks awesome. it's funny because I come out of these podcasts and I'm energized and bouncing around, you know, and meanwhile, you can have a, a lazy Saturday morning. I'm like, yeah, let's have another cup of coffee. Um, so core stiffness. And, and the first thing is we have to redefine what is core. So I want to ask you, Joe, when you say core, what specifically are you envisioning? Well, it's just whatever is holding my, you know, I'm holding the handlebars with my hand and my foot is clipped into the pedal and I'm pushing down with the foot that's in the pedal. And what is keeping some of that energy from going back up the chain rather than down into the pedal? So everything in between, I guess. Spot on, man. That's exactly right. Love it. And that's what a lot of people miss, right? The, the buzzword for core is stomach, or, or the buzzword for stomach is core. But in fact, that is so so short. And, and this is kind of where, you know, I had my own back injury when I was 19. Uh, I was an idiot. I didn't listen to my coach who said, don't draw your belly button into your stomach when you're doing squats. But I read a research article. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I read a research article. Doc was not there. He sent me my workout and during my warm-up set with 135 on the bar, which was nothing for me at the time, I, tingling and that was it. I, I'm pretty sure uh, I saw uh, Dr. McGill, who's, who's become a mentor and uh, a bit of a friend over the years, a uh, decade and a half or so. And, and uh, essentially, I, after one of his presentations, he had people come up, ask questions. And usually it's, you know, I have such and such pain. And I just walked up to him and he said, oh, disc herniation, end plate fracture, da 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 And I must have gone white because he's like, oh, that wasn't your question. (laughs) 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 No, I actually had another question. Um, Anyhow, uh, what I learned way back then is that the muscles of the core, really it's everything in the body, exactly what you described. But in order for most people to not drink out of the fire hose and instead of have, you know, a nice ice cold stream coming out of a, a stronger water fountain, uh, it's everything between the neck, the elbows and knees. Because okay. if we look at it as just the stomach, the muscles of the stomach don't have an agonist and an antagonist, the muscles of the midriff. They're not there. They all work together to deflect forces around the spine. Um, so. You hit on another thing, which was absolutely brilliant here, and wherever you picked it up is fantastic, and that is the strength that we need for for cycling is not a a push one motion uh, to overcome a force, it's this pulsing. And that's one of the reasons why I absolutely love uh, the kettlebell for cyclists. And I've been pushing kettlebells uh, since maybe 2007, 2008. I was a little bit later in those. Uh, I started with it just before CrossFit started to get uh, popular. I, I happened upon it because of my back injury. Physical therapist right. knew about it, found one for me online. I think at the time it was like $85 for a 15-pound kettlebell, which nowadays are 15 bucks. Uh, well, Corona prices, I think it was like 150. Um, <laughs> but uh, that pulsing is really what we're looking for. And and that's in the book, uh, we're going through and revising it right now. It'll be released in uh, October 8th, I think is the date we have. Um, but essentially, I talk about the different types of strength. And, and when I put that for the first book, even the first editor, um, who was a little bit younger in, in his editing career, was like, that's too much information. People are not like the book's already 400 pages. They're not going to connect with this. Like you just got to make it the basic ones. And that's what a lot of cyclists are missing is that in order for us to perform on the bike, and that's where that movement skill is so important. So like uh, going back to the track cyclist and talking about that pulsing, that 
that shielded breath, and I've got a, um, a video up on YouTube I'll send you the link to, that right. skill of being able to do that or the McGill curl up done properly is where the vast majority of your performance gains on the bike are going to come. It's from three to five exercises. It's not squats. It's not lunges. It's not hinging. It's not deadlifts. It's being able to coordinate things to get movement from the shoulder and hip. And that ties into the next thing, and that is – uh, I don't remember your exact uh, verbiage here, but but you mentioned something about uh, stiffness. And the the terminology that Dr. McGill had that's always stuck with me was force creates motion, but stiffness controls motion. Mm-hmm. And we need just enough stiffness in the right places to produce the the pulse down. And that's what the best athletes in the world have done. And that's where uh, a number of people are a little confused because I work a lot with uh, in-person basketball players, development professionals, uh, international professionals are are coming to me to help with back pain or or to produce a little bit better power on the court. Like how the hell does cycling and triathlon transfer to basketball? I can understand jumping and running, but how does that go? And it's all stiffness and force control. That's all it is. It's that simple. Um, so when you're talking about pulsing on the bike, it's the ability to produce just enough tension to get that, that pulse and relax. Um, when it comes to muscle strength and resiliency, those, and that's the second half of this, the the fourth and fifth point that's piggybacking off of what we just talked about, that ability to have a true core. So everything between the neck, the elbows and the knees is working properly, producing force, but also producing stiffness in the right places in the right amounts to allow you to express strength from the muscles. So most people, when we get into the weight room, and this is where a lot of people are fooled uh, with these 12 week strength training programs on, on unsaid platform that they can purchase from a number of, of, of individuals as a beginner strength training athlete, you can have 30 years on the bike. I know a couple guys, 30, 35 years on the bike, incredible cyclists. They are at the same training age in the weight room as the 14-year-old, 13-year-old basketball kids I get because they've never done it before. They're like, I've done some push-ups back in, you know, I used to do the, the fitness class. And when you when they come to it with the right mentality, which surprisingly is most of them, at that point, they've messed up enough times to realize new mind, beginner mind, you know, um, or what is the Zen, zen quote? Uh uh, I forget what it is. Something mind, beginner mind, Zen mind, beginner mind. Um, they come to it with the attitude of being completely new and a student. Those are the guys that come in and they, they crush it. But for most of us, I can literally do anything with you for the first three to six months, especially if you're between the ages of 20 and, and 35 and relatively healthy, and you're going to see improvements in your strength. It's beginner gains. It's a new training stimulus, just like when you get on the bike. You average 13 miles an hour for a couple weeks, then you go to 14, then you go to 15, but you get three, six, nine months in, you're like, why am I not progressing? Oh, I must find a training plan. It's because you've used, you've usurped all of the the free gains, essentially, the low hanging fruit. Um, So the muscular strength and the resiliency, we have to separate. So the muscular strength is coming from the ability to, to express those skills on the bike, And the resiliency comes from the many adaptations that happen to strength training. It's not just the muscle. The the first one is anatomical adaptations. Uh, And I actually had somebody in in, uh, my Facebook group ask, uh, I know everything is in context, but masters 50 plus and after uh, a good fall and winter strength training program, do you also recommend year round strength maintenance program, even if racing? And this to me was a big aha moment because 
who needs strength training year-round? Cyclists. Who really, really needs strength training year-round? Master cyclists over the age of 50. Hmm. And this is where, you know, before we went on to, to recording here, Joe, you had mentioned um, how to fit in strength training and the interference effect. And this is a common yeah. question I get, right? And yes, we're learning so much. The, the, the interference with mTOR in particular, that's the one that we've identified. We know, maybe we find out it's something different. Uh, just like we now know it's not lactate, it's the hydrogen ions that limit things. Um, but the interference effect, when you're looking at an athlete who's 40 plus, and specifically females uh, who are postmenopause or premenopause, in those years where the hormones are starting to do all the crazy stuff, yeah. the interference effect comes from our brains. And what I mean by that is we're overthinking it. Like the best thing you can do as an athlete in your 40s, especially premenopausal uh, females, is to do regular strength training because what that's going to do is begin to change the internal environment. We're going to start to change the hormonal production and, and stabilize things a little bit more in the body. You're going to increase the anabolic uh, hormones when you're sleeping. To, uh, the HGH is going to go up a little bit, but it doesn't come from these super intense strength training sessions. And this is where the lift heavy stuff uh, has gotten carried way too far. Heavy is relative, but in order to get to heavy, and this is coming back to the, the muscle stronger question, we need the connective tissues to get better. And that's going to take three to six weeks of just learning the movements. And this is where we've got to check the ego at the door. So some of my master's athletes, I, I, I know I can barely squeak out two weeks and it's really a negotiation. Some of the toughest negotiations I've ever done are with a couple of my master's athletes. So like, please, just two weeks, give me six workouts and just go with it. And, and, and you mean two weeks, easy, easy, just body weight, no resistance, no barbells, uh. no nothing. And what that does is allow you to learn the skill of how your body's moving in space, as well as for us to load at such low rates that the connective tissue is starting to get prepared. The nervous system's starting to get prepared. And then we'll do, I sneak in a second two week where we'll, I'm like, okay, we're going to ramp up the weights, but the connective tissues are white. They take a lot more time to adapt. The muscles are yeah. red. There's high blood flow, very viscous. You have a lot of nutrients. Um, but coming back to the interference effect, how does this all tie in? It's that if we want to see resilience on the bike, we need regular dosing of strength training to change the internal environment to allow you to be able to see progress. So our brain gets in the way of saying, well, if I want to ride my bike better and I get so sore after strength training that I can't pedal for three days, it's interfering with my ability to ride my bike. And what that means, yeah. and, and Glenn's laughing because it sounds like either you've been through this or you know a couple, a couple people who have. Um, and, and I love that, that you find this uh, entertaining because a lot of people are like, no, that's not me. And they get upset that I'm saying this. And really, this is for your best in that if you do three days a week of 20 minutes of strength training where you're lifting something that's an RPE of five, six, or seven. So it's a medium, medium plus. You're not going to failure. You're not super sore the next day. In fact, you're leaving the gym saying, yeah, I could do another round or two of each of the exercises. Perfect. We've got exactly what we need done. So how we fit it in and allowing you to see the muscles get stronger is really two to three days a week spaced at least 24 to 36 hours apart. And we're not lifting to get sore. In fact, if you're more sore the second day after your strength training session than you were the day after, that's a huge, big red flag that you've done way too much, man. And uh, like I said, at the beginning with my mentors, uh, they don't, they're not worried about the days they go into the gym and they feel bad. They're worried about the days they go in and feel good because they're going to do something. They feel good. 
Yeah, yeah they're, they're going to kill much. it in the gym. Yeah. And so the interference effect, you know, there's some science out there about it. If And, and let's just put it this way. The track athletes I'm working with here will do strength training after yeah. their track session. Why? The bike is their main focus. But when it comes to, you know, we have worlds coming up here in Cairo, Egypt in a couple of weeks, I think uh, seven or eight days as of this recording. Um, so they're doing their programs, but it's mostly body weight. And I, in fact, I just told one of the athletes this morning, uh, we were communicating. I was like, hey, you know, congrats. You just did a, a really good race. How are you feeling? I'm very tired. Well, you know what? Let's cut down. Let's skip the strength training. So we're in 10 days before a, a peak event. And this is what a lot of people mess up. Uh, and I just had a master's athletes go and perform the, uh, or do the Belgian waffle ride. And his cycling coach, uh, made the comment of common knowledge in air quotes is that you should stop strength training, uh, three to four weeks before your main event. And this is, you know, that's an interference effect. I know I'm kind of taking those words and I'm twisting it, but we've all, this is where the research can get you to focus on this one thing. And if you miss the big picture, uh, you're missing the forest for the trees. The interference effect is you're removing a training stimulus, which is helping you stay balanced and strong in order to get your best performances. So this athlete actually skipped their last five workouts. They started moving things around and I know a lot gym. in the gym and a lot of it was pressure from the coach. And I just, at this point in my coaching career, I, I unless some, somebody's doing something that's really going to set them off the rails, I just let them make the mistakes. Like, yeah, yeah. So we haven't done the post-event wrap-up yet. I'd like to give seven to 10 days. Um, but he could have produced another seven and a half watts over the yeah. course of that the Belgian waffle ride. So anybody who's done that is going, seven and a half watts. That's like, holy crap. That's like 10 minutes. You can only lead a horse to water, right? And this is where... There's all these different things, but when it comes to fitting in the strength training, it's the consistency that's going to get you there. So sometimes where I'm at in my life right now, young baby, teething, getting up at night, one heavy lift a, a week, an hour and 15, an hour, 20 minutes, depending on, on the gap that I have between my clients and, and the time that I have to take uh, my son. And then at home, just, I have my kettlebells back here. Sorry. I have my kettlebells back here. I got a 28. I'll pop off two sets of 20 deadlifts twice during the day, maybe some push-ups, maybe I'll do some overhead press, but that's it. It's, it's a built into my day. And this is what Dan John has talked about uh, with his kettlebell. The 10,000 kettlebell swing was of course taken by social media saying you have to do 10,000 swings in a row. Like, no, no, that's, that's not how it works. Once again, the interference effect of social media telling you, you have to do it all at once. So let me tie it up with a, a bow and make it look nice. Uh, now that we've done all the butchering out back. <laughs> um, the, the idea of muscles getting stronger, becoming more resilient is only going to happen when you're thinking about it of building the core stiffness, everything between the neck, elbows, and knees to be able to produce the forces at the areas you need, mostly the shoulder and hip, not at the spine, to get the movement and enough stiffness throughout the rest. That's only going to happen if you're able to work in two to three regular strength training sessions a week year round. As a master's athlete, this is non-negotiable. Exceptions being family vacation, you're going to do a, a week-long um, stage race or event. Uh, that's just like a professional rider. Like if you're if you're going to go and you're going to do a, a, a six-day race, like the Rocky Mountain stage race, which hopefully will happen next year, yeah, we're not going to do strength training. But after each event, each day, we're going to do a little bit of breath work, we're going to target one to two uh, trouble areas that we know if we keep them moving well, you're going to perform well. And maybe in the mornings, we'll do a very quick set of uh, a variation of the McGill Big Three. But 
the interference that most of us have isn't from strength versus cardiovascular. I would say during base period, do what's best for you. If you like strength training first and then getting on the bike, great, do that. If you feel like getting off the bike and then doing the strength training works for you, great, do that as well. But know that the weights are going to be totally by feel, not by the numbers written on some uh, Excel file or program somewhere. Yeah. So you said two or three days a week, uh, I think you said like 20, 30 minutes and you leave with plenty of juice in the tank. It's like, I could have done a lot more, but I'm specifically not doing a lot more, but just giving some stimulus, not maximum stimulus. I'm not looking to be a bodybuilder or, you know, a strength athlete. I'm just trying to make my body stronger and more resilient. And it's a long-term gain. I'm not going to be a lot better tomorrow, but if I keep doing this, I'm going to be stronger and more resilient over time. Exactly. All right. So a minimum effective dose kind of a idea. Exactly. And, and the RPE of five, six, or seven, especially over the age of 40, uh, if you haven't been a strength training athlete before in the last 10 years, because uh, a lot of guys lifted in college, but then they, they don't for 10 years. Um, so five, six, or seven. So you want to leave with what's called reps and reserve. Usually you should have about three repetitions where it's just starting to get hard. Your technique is still good. You do another one and then you're, you're done with your set and you say, I could do another three that felt that feel heavy, but with great technique. That's your RPE of seven. Okay. And you never get to where you're losing your form just to get another rep. No. Uh, asterisk. Exception being maximum strength. So there's different stages through the year. So we're doing a very uh, uh, focused, like we can go really deep on this, but in short, there's five stages throughout the strength training year, four of which all of us should go through. Uh, the max strength stage usually coincides in, in the Northern hemisphere with late build. So we're talking May and June. When most people are cutting out their strength training, it is exactly when you should be doing strength training if you've been doing it year round. So at that time, if you think about it, where you you normally are, Joe, um, yeah. in May and June, you're usually like, I don't want to be in the gym. I, I, I want to be on my bike. Like it's nice outside. Right. I've been locked inside. That's when we do a dynamic warm up. We do our our um, a little bit of foam rolling maybe before that, our breath exercise, which takes us about 15 minutes all in all. And then we get into three or four exercises and we do heavy weights where it'd be an RPE of eight or nine. You do two or three with proper rest. You're in and out of the gym in 30 minutes. That's one day a week. And then the other day is exactly what we talked about. So there is a time, um, but there's so many details. Like I'm trying to keep it just pointed for today so that the listeners sure, aren't sure. like, wow, yeah. I have no, it's a fire hose. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And we, and, and, and there's no doubt that if we could get on your schedule, we'd like to get you back on here. Uh, there's only so much we can cover here in this one session. I, I did want to ask you one more sort of follow up on that. And then let's touch on the question that uh, Glenn had. You just mentioned lift heavy. All right. So that implies that that's different from lifting, but not heavy. And, and earlier you had mentioned body weight exercises, and then there's all kinds of things that people find in the gym and maybe they even like, you know, yoga or what I've done a lot of is body weight stuff. And so where, where does body weight or really lightweight fit into the scheme of things versus heavy weights? Absolutely. Fantastic question. Um, I did a podcast episode on this, are TRX and bodyweight exercises actual strength training? The answer, the real answer is always going to be, it depends. So 
There's three primary mechanisms for muscular hypertrophy. There's mechanical overload, which is heavy weight. We have metabolic stress, and then we have time under tension. So when it comes to body weight exercises, for many of us, especially those master athletes, uh, and I include myself in this category right now with where I am building back after uh, a hiatus due to injuries and corona and baby, um, body weight is enough, or it can be enough for a set amount of time. We have to make that yeah. differentiation for a set amount of time. This is where developing the skill through your own body weight is so absolutely instrumental. So push-ups, yes. Um, planks, sure. Are they the best tools? Not necessarily. But if you don't have access to a gym, you are intimidated by the gym atmosphere, or you're uncertain, let's start with body weight. So I have a, a couple really junior cyclists, 12, 13 year, years old. They're working their way through their version of, of a 90-day bodyweight program. It's the beginning of base here uh, in Israel. So August uh, is, is the hottest. So all the teams take a two-week program uh, break at the end of the summer, usually first two weeks of August. And then we have the, the high holidays. So everything is kind of a, a jumble. But they're working through bodyweight exercises. However, the returns from those bodyweight exercises are going to taper off at some point. Now, um, there are some really great resources out there. Um, I can't remember the name of one of them. Uh, Wade, Coach Wade, as what the guy calls himself. I can't remember the name of the book. I'll see if I can find it for you. But it's essentially a body weight exercise, um, uh, convict conditioning, no, convict something, something like that, where he was a, a prisoner and he read a lot. And uh, his contribution at himself was to do uh, body weight training. And uh, it's yeah, pretty cool. I think it's it's published by Dragon Door, and they've got some really great stuff. Um, that'd be there awesome. Go. I've heard of this, by the way. And, and it was a guy, what he could do for himself in his cell, right? So yep. he didn't have access to tools. Yep. Convict conditioning. It's right next to Roar in my uh, Kindle here. <laughs> um, Paul Wade is his name. So that's one approach. And that can certainly work. However, uh, my suggestion to those athletes over the age of 40 is uh, we've all heard about low testosterone and all this other stuff. And a lot of that is marketing. A lot of it is also because of our, our society and how we treat stress yeah. and how much we sit. But over the age of 40, you do need external load. However, it doesn't have to be weights. It could be bands. Uh, TRX can also do it as well because you're leveraging your body. However, each tool is going to have its limitations. So if, okay. if you were to ask me, like, would you recommend body weight year round? No. You've, you've got to go through at least the first three stages of strength training every year. That's anatomical adaptations. So three to six weeks or two to four weeks, if you've been more seasoned, then you have hypertrophy and no, if you're riding enough, and this is where a lot of cyclists go wrong. And this is where, um, common knowledge right now is that you hit the gym hard for 12 weeks in the fall. And essentially your, your road bike or biking hours falls to next to nil, you know, four hours a week. And maybe you're doing long rides on the weekend. Well, if you do that, hell yeah, you're going to have loss of, of fitness because you're not doing the thing that you're trying to make better. You're sacrificing yeah. bike ride time for gym time. And that's not, it may work for some, but a very short time, but hypertrophy should coincide with when most people are hitting the gym like that, but not to the extent. So five, six, and seven, and then we have max strength. So after max strength, we go through conversion to sports specific, uh, strength, and that's where breaking, handling, sprinting, you know, the Joe Friel book faster after 50. I, I really should just yeah. ask Joe if he can sponsor me. Cause I give that out all the time. <laughs> people are like, what should I do now? I'm like, 
here's Joe's book. It tells you exactly, you know, this is the general principles um, because those are the things that are actually going to help you build off of the strength training as opposed to having an interference. So uh, Dr. Sims is known to, to say uh, for females, they need to do postmenopausal women need to do a heavy strength training and then do a high intensity interval training right after that. And what she's looking for is a very specific hormonal spike. And that's the internal environment we talked about before. Well, it's not just women that can, can gain from that, but cyclists who are dropping their bike completely, finish your strength training. Don't go to where you're toasted, finish, walk out, knowing you could do a little bit more, go home, get on the trainer and knock out some of the intervals that Joe has in his book, or even the time crunched cyclist by uh, um, Chris Carmichael is also another great reference because mm -hmm. you need to have that intensity. Uh, and that's where I've dabbled my whole coaching career for cycling is how do we get you to be a faster cyclist without spending 50 hours a week on a bike? So one of the first guys I coached wound up going pro. Uh, and we, when we wound up transitioning coaches, uh, and both of us came to that conclusion at the same time that he needed someone else, uh, his coach was impressed that he wasn't doing the high volume like most guys were. And if I remember correctly, the verbiage was somewhere along the lines of, oh, that's why you've gotten so fast so quickly. We've hmm. done intensity and we've done enough endurance, whereas most people are going out thinking they need these massive rides. Uh, that's a little bit off the point, but um, you do need the heavy weight, the TRX and the body weight do have their places, um, but don't rely on them forever. So I would go body weight and bands, body weight yeah. and a single kettlebell. Uh, so for, for most beginners, an eight kilo and a 12 kilo or, or 16 pound and 30 pound or 25 pound uh, kettlebell will be ample. That'll give you a good year, year and a half of strength training. I, I, that's why I put the, that year round program in my book of bells and bands and body weight and TRX is exactly right. that. Like you can get three years right. of full training, go from body weight, TRX, bells and bands, and then dumbbells and traditional strength equipment. Well, awesome. Well, before uh, Glenn comes through the screen here and chokes me, let's, I, we don't really have much time, I'm, I'm afraid, but in whatever time you can afford to give us here, Glenn was talking about paying a price for not having stretched before his races and All those now years. has- Now the penalty I pay. He has flexibility <laughs> issues. Major. Glenn, why don't I just have you describe it and put and get closer to the microphone, buddy. I can't quite hear you. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, I mean, gosh, for 40 years, I would never stretch at all. And um, I just race. And of course, that led to issues a long time. And now, of course, it's the opposite. I have to stretch or I can't race at all. But um, I'd, I'd love you to talk more about the fascia because I'm thinking this is really one of the big issues I'm dealing with is the fascial issues. Um, my Rolfer just says I'm super, super, super tight, but after he works with me, I'm really flexible afterwards. Big, big differences. So yeah, this is a really good topic. Uh, I think that, that the answer to this really is Glenn, that it's not paying the price for not, for not stretching. Uh, what, what's happening is, uh, and this is why one of the reasons a lot of masters athletes over the age of 35 see a lot of, um, overuse injuries occur around that 40 to 45 age group is because you're essentially reaping the seeds that you sowed before. And what I mean by that is our poor posture. As you were asking your question, I was actually rolling up my towel because my back gets cranky after I sit for too long. Um, so I've got to make sure I'm, I'm fixing my posture and, what happens is it's not necessarily the fascia. And, and actually, I don't, um, we're, we're going to do for you guys here that are listening, but I'm, I'm going to show to these guys with a, a dynamic disc model here. Um, what happens over time is instead of staying stiff, let's use this one, uh, 
the tissues of the body are going to start to stretch. So I have here in front of me a dynamic disc design uh, model of this, the lumbar spine. I use this with the back pain patients that I, that come to me. And essentially what happens is over time, we create movement where there shouldn't be. And if you notice, guys, I'm wiggling the L5 S1. Not much is going on there. You can see it's not really moving. But if I go yeah. up to L4, uh, L4, L5, now all of a sudden, there's, there's a whole lot of movement going on there. And what yeah. has happened is this person, so to speak, has created a laxity in their ligaments and in their connective tissues, which aren't meant, they're not meant to be that way by sitting in poor postures or riding their bike and hinging forward. And what that's done is create an instability in through the disc. So Glenn, mm. you mentioned before hamstring issues, believe it or not, uh, hamstring tightness has no correlation to lower back pain. Uh, it's been studied. Dr. McGill is well published, I think over 300 in his, his lifetime, which is massive. Uh, a lot of other researchers have looked. However, uh, in the preamble here, uh, I think Joe mentioned you did, or you mentioned you've done some speed skating for quite some time. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's a ton of abduction moving away uh, from the center line. And what we do know creates back pain is loss of range of motion and control through range of motion at the hip socket. So with a lot of the abduction that puts you into anterior pelvic tilt, but what that does also is create these stretches over time that are going to change the tissues. So there's a lot more movement in through that, that shouldn't be there. So what you're feeling now, and this is very much a broad, I can't paint with a bigger brush. This is a brush the size of the Eiffel Tower, essentially, I'm going to paint with here. Um, what's probably happening and not having done an, an assessment with you is over time, some of your tissues have stretched and other muscles have shut down to protect that joint. And in short, along with those physiologic, physiological changes of the connective tissues, uh, the ligaments, the tendons stretching, um, and the discs delaminating, on top of that, you also have a, a protective mechanism kicked on. A muscle has three jobs in the body. Number one is to protect a joint. Number two is to stabilize a joint while an adjacent joint moves. And number three is to move a joint. That last one is what all of us are thinking of. So when you're, when you're saying you can't race your bike or ride your bike without stretching before, to me, that says that we have a big opportunity for you, not through stretching, but through proper strength training. And this is where a lot of well-meaning people, we get on a conversation, we get into a call and they say, well, I don't have time for strength training, but they're stretching for 45 minutes, six days a week. I can't give up my stretching. So when you go through and, and you do the passive stretching, there is definitely a time and a place. So masters athletes over the age of 45, I'm very big proponent of stretching the chest a little bit before your ride and after your ride. It's called a corner stretch. I'll see if I have a video to share with you guys here for the links. Um, but essentially it's opening up the pectoralis minor, opening up thoracic extension and getting them into a better set position before they get on the bike and especially after. The stretching in that area is followed by activation. So I just uh, we just released for the Fast Labs um, uh, pathway for foam rolling. We just released the the video series, and the end of it is a piece that most of the people who watch are going to skip, and that's called the reach roll lift exercise. We spend all this time on the foam roller, all this time opening things up, and the the missing key for most people is activating muscles and getting strength through range of motion there. So one of the things that we'll have to come back and, and maybe we'll use Glenn as the human uh, the human experiment <laughs> here uh, to help make him stronger and, and faster. Um, although I don't know if we can make you a, a whole lot faster already, man. Um, <laughs> the flexibility is important, 
But if you don't get strength and control through that range of motion, you're just creating more instability. And that's what we see with the, the, the spine model is after a certain point, now, now you're, you're screwed. I mean, once you get to the point where this disc is moving here, you're, you're almost pretty much guaranteed to have a disc herniation, which is just gonna happen because now things are moving in a way, you see that red goo coming out, that's the, the, the disc. There's just nowhere else, there's, there's nowhere else for it to go. It, it's, there's so much movement, the muscles can't stabilize. So in, in, to bring it all together here, it's not so much a flexibility issue, Although it could be with, with your uh, history of speed skating, it may very well be a flexibility thing because your body's just adjusted to that position. We need to give you strength through range of motion and better control through that. And that probably won't solve your issue. But for many of the back, early back pain riders that come to me, you know, we're talking two, three years, but no major events. Usually that's going to resolve their issue in, in three to six months of doing the exercises. For you, I, we, you know, again, maybe we can do a... A video session, but there's a couple easy ways we can see how flexible you are. Uh, how are we on, on time here, Joe? Do we have uh, another two minutes for me to kind of? Yes. Okay. Um, so, Glenn, I'm, I'm going to turn you into a human guinea pig here for a second. It won't hurt, I That's promise. <laughs> and you listeners at home, as long as you're not driving, this is totally okay to do. If you're driving, find somewhere safe to pull over and, and then try it. Uh, yes, even if you're on your bike. Let's check your flexibility. We're not going to look at your hamstrings. Okay. We're, we're going <laughs> to look at the fingers. So the simple one is we're gonna take your hand, we're gonna bring it back into a pistol-like position, and you're gonna take your index finger and try and pull it back to your uh, to your forearm. Joe, if you can rotate your hand so I can see it a little bit better. Oh my goodness. There you go, Glenn. Joe, yeah. let's see yours. Can you turn your hands, Joe, so I can see it, how close it is? There you go. So Joe's more flexible than you are, man. Yeah. I'm trying, can you see me? Yeah, I can see. There you go. And Glenn, I can see you as well. Glenn and I are about yeah. the same. I think, uh, yeah, Joe's way more flexible here. And all we're doing is we're, is we're fingertip to fingertip with our index finger and we're, we're flexed, uh, or I'm sorry, extended back with our wrist. And we're just trying to pull that index finger back towards the top of our form. That's how we know how flexible you are. That That's gonna tell us how much turgor there is essentially in through the body. And Joe's really flexible, man. Unless you broke that finger a bunch of times. <laughs> He's ambidextrous, no, no, goodness gracious. No, I, I guess I'm, that's my one good part. <laughs> <laughs> we can also do, you know, some people will tell you, no, that, that's not a good test. You have to do it with a thumb. It, it's still the same, uh, other way, Joe. So if you put the hand so as if you're holding a pizza pie, uh, there you go. Yeah, Joe's, and now we see Glenn's even less flexible. I'm in the middle and Joe, once again, is kicking our butts. Um, so that's how we know how much turgor there is in the body. Um, just like, uh, do you guys remember the guys back in college or, or high school that you'd sit there and, and they, they're sitting there with their leg, you know, they're, they're sitting there bouncing their leg and you're like, can you please stop that? Those are the guys who are the natural sprinters. They have, they're not going to be very flexible. Um, so just to close this with a little parable, Dr. McGill in one of his presentations talked about this high jumper, a uh, guy that shows up in the, the halftime shows for the NBA and does these really outrageous dunks. Well, he had um, a very slight uh, injury. I don't remember exactly what it was, but someone gave him some really bad advice. And, and that was, if you want to avoid back pain later, you need to stretch your hamstrings. Well, this guy went and stretched his hamstrings and wound up with major issues. So he wound up at Stu's doorstep before Stu was well known, um, or as known as he is. And Stu did a full assessment. He didn't just shoot off the cuff and essentially said, stop stretching your hamstrings. You're, you're, you're taking away your gift and your protective mechanism. Those muscles are no longer uh, springy as they need to be for you and your system. 
sure, stretching hamstrings may be good for someone who's uh, much more flexible and, and has a reason to, but you're just creating pain. And this is where a lot of cyclists are as well. And I want to bring back up and we'll, we'll close here with that Chiquita banana, uh, you know, picture, because that's really what a lot of us look like as we're climbing or as we're riding in a hard effort. You see the shoulders go to one side and the hips go to the other and they twist. Uh, back in the Giro d'Italia, um, no, back in 2018, in one of the spring races uh, that Nibali won in Italy, I can't remember the name of it. I'm a horrible cycling coach, remember forgetting the name of it. There was an attack with five kilometers left that Nibali went. He wound up winning the race. And many of you are yelling at the microphone or the whatever you're listening to. It's this race, you idiot. Of course, I forget. Uh, but uh, he went on attack with one of the Israel Cycling Academy riders. And, and I was very tuned into that. I had been working with the team a little bit uh, on the administrative side. And I immediately, Nibali and the Israel Cycling Academy rider and one other rider win the break. And within 10 seconds of them showing the, the motorcycle shot from the back, I said, Vincenzo is going to drop them both. And I was like, the, uh, our rider's just blown to pieces. I can't remember who it was. And that's exactly what happened. Nibali sat up, looked at both, went to the back, watched both of them, and then just dropped them both. And the announcers are like, how can he do that? He's going to lower his chances. I was like, no, that was totally the right call. The ICA rider, you you watch it. If you look for it, you can you can find it. Uh, the, the video online, it's evident. It's so evident he's got nothing left. He's bobbing and weaving side to side. The hips are going yeah, yeah. one way. The shoulders are going the other and that flexibility that you're creating by stretching after, if you're going to stretch anything, stretch your quadriceps and that's it. And then do some, some side planks with the top foot forward and leave everything alone and, and fire the glutes up maybe. Um, but that flexibility that a lot of riders are doing where this dogma of doing these long sessions of static stretching after a ride, number one, you're stretching the things that have already been stretched. So Glenn, you know, my question to you would be, after your rides, are you then spending a lot of time stretching your hamstrings with the foot in front of you or up on a on a fence? <laughs> Sometimes, if I if I can't, I have to drive home. <laughs> so it's it's individual. For most people, I would suggest try stretching the quadriceps first. Try mm -hmm. that one time and see how that goes. Um, we would have to see what your movement patterns are, but but as a broad sweeping Eiffel of Tower size brush. Most cyclists stretching the hamstrings and stretching the posterior chain is the absolute wrong thing to do. You've already spent so much time. Think about a Laffy Taffy out on your dashboard in mid-July in Austin, Texas. And now you've taken yeah. that and you've you've grabbed it with one hand and you've wrapped it around and now you're riding your bike in that, that C-curved position and you just finished. And now essentially at the end of the ride, instead of trying to get the Laffy Taffy to go back to the way it was, which is impossible, you're now trying to stretch it even more the same way. So you're just creating, you're feeding forward into that loop. Yeah. All right. Well, Glenn has some stuff to think about <laughs> and look forward to for our next session with Menachem. Sounds Menachem, great. Menachem, thank you very much, sir. Uh, I, I, we are definitely going to get you back here, but uh, just so people can find you, we're going to put stuff in the show notes and you've been promising to send us stuff. I appreciate that. But go ahead and, and tell us uh, like your website, uh, your, your podcast name, just uh, maybe social media, the, any place you think people should look to find you. Yeah, uh, I think uh, for the most part would be humanvortextraining.com. Uh, I know that's a mouthful. Uh, I'll send you the link as well. Uh, but across all social media, it's 
HV training, human vortex training, HV training, all one word. Uh, YouTube, we have a bunch of different content, as, as you mentioned before, that you've seen, Joe, uh, which shows you the cycling-specific adaptations. Uh, and then we do have uh, two things that are coming out that I'm really excited about. Uh, number one is the second edition of my book, uh, Strength Training for Cycling Performance, which will be available on October 8th. That's the date right nice. now. It might move a little bit, but October. Uh, and then there's also the Strength Training for Cyclist Certification course uh, where I do a full deep dive. Like we go through everything. We go through uh, intake, how to assess yourself. Now, one of the things with that is this is for the curious athlete and coach. Uh, and Joe, I'll, I'll send you a copy here um, for you okay. guys. But uh, really what it is, there's no black and white answer. And, and the great coaches that have come through that course really understand that. And the emails I get from them are like, wow, I'm, I'm so impressed. You're not saying, if you see this in the assessment, do this, this, and this, because that's such a big mistake. Like I said with Glenn, I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes, but we may do a, an on-camera assessment next time, a little bit of movements, and I may go, wow, I was wrong. I was so wrong. Glenn, you need to stretch the crap out of your hamstrings. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, Take that with a grain of salt. Uh, but those are the two resources that I'm, I'm really excited about. Uh, and the, the course is going to open here. It opens uh, in the fall. Uh, I think somewhere around October we'll do or early November. Um, but tons of great resources. There's a ton of free stuff. The Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete podcast as well. Uh, blog post over on HV Training. Uh, and again, Facebook, Instagram. Although I'm not really on Instagram. I, I just don't have the patience for it. You know, it's such a small... Give me 15 seconds. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well, that was great. I appreciate that, guys. And um, you all have a great day. All right. Very good. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion with Menachem Brody about how to use strength training to get better at endurance sports. And thanks to Menachem for taking some time to share his expertise. You can find more information about Menachem and how to reach him in the show notes. And if you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you're on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That'd be a great help. Thanks again.